This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hi, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we're live every Thursday morning from 10, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. And then we're replayed during the week and also available on the app. So you can listen to us all day long if you want to. Yes, indeed. And our wonderful, not-so-new communications manager, Nisa, is also doing a great job of starting to write up some of our segments. So you can actually uh, listen to the audio. And then yeah. if you're interested in following up and taking a look at those show notes and summaries, it's available on our website. And we have a, a busy uh, day today. We've got yes. an, an additional guest. Um, we often have an open segment of the fourth uh, period, of the fourth segment, but this time we've, we've actually got a guest. So no time for us to chat, Sandy. Oh, uh, well, we'll find time we'll, later today. We'll find time. <laughs> so let me give you uh, all our listeners a rundown of, of our guest. Our first guest, who will join us in just a minute, moment, is Amy Lynn. Amy's the acting Deputy Director of USAID Center for Innovation and Impact. Great title for a, a, a spy place, right? Mm-hmm. At the bottom of the hour, we'll welcome the CEO and President of Benefits Data Trust, Ginger Zielinski. Um, and they're ba- actually based, started here in Philadelphia, but they're a really interesting model. I can't wait to talk to, to her about their approach. Third and fourth guests in one hour will be Robert Garrett, the CEO of Hackensack Meridian Health Network, and Donald Parker, who's the CEO and president of Carrier Clinic. And they've got an interesting um, approach that they're they're talking about a, a merger and working on on different ways to work together. So yeah, that's and, and big, serious issues. I can't imagine there are a lot of listeners who would be... Who are unaffected yeah. by things. I mean, their list includes um, tackling the opioid crisis, depression, and teen suicide. So very, very um, important work. Exactly. And then our final segment, we'll talk with Paul Brest, who's the former dean of Stanford Law and the, the author of Money Well Spent. Um, I'm going to give you all our phone number. It's one eight four four wharton 844-942-7866, so that you can call in during the segment and, and ask our guests questions. You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And I, and I often say just put a little dollar sign in the, uh, the header, the subject line, so that we you know, know it's for us and not for some other show. And our Twitter is at BizRadio132. Good. So with that, welcome to the show, Amy. Hi. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm glad that we finally uh, got you on. I know that there were some uh, <laughs> some challenges with the government shutdown to get you scheduled, but we finally got you here, so that's great. Yes, happy to be here. Happy so, to be back at work. Yeah. So um, for our listeners who may not know exactly what USAID does, I'm going to ask you to talk about that first, and then we can talk about what the Center for Innovation and Impact does. Sure. USAID is the U.S. government's agency for international development. So we are looking at problems of how do we address problems of poverty around the world in low- and middle-income countries. And then within that, there's a global health bureau that focuses on challenges of global health, which could be HIV or Zika or malaria or TB or any number of other health conditions. And then within that is housed our Center for Innovation and Impact. Oh, so you have a specific focus then on the, the health issues. Exactly. So we work across health areas mm-hmm. and we try to look at how business approaches. So a lot of the Wharton skills and experience can be applied to addressing Zika, 
from finding, developing rapid tests for Zika or bringing new HIV treatments to market faster or looking at how we can um, convince our end clients or users to use the health products or services that we think will improve or even save their lives. Right. Interesting mix. Do, do other divisions within USAID have uh, similar centers for innovation and impact or are you unique in that? I think we might be unique in that within the Global Health Bureau, but there are other teams within the agency that similarly look at bringing in new ideas for other areas as well, such gotcha. as um, the Global Development Lab and other teams. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, Amy, you referenced your MBA from the Wharton School, so we're always <laughs> delighted to see alums using their, their degrees for impact like this. Let's um, maybe start with a little storytelling to paint the picture of how business solutions might be different than, um, you know, nonprofit or government solutions. So how might your division uh, tackle a problem in a different way by having this market focus, just so we can orient our listeners to, you know, that unique charge of your of your shop? Yeah, absolutely. Um I think one thing that might feel very familiar for listeners on the commercial side is human-centered design and how consumer products often think about what the users want and desire in order to better design products that meet those needs. And we applied that thinking to oral pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, for HIV, which is essentially a pill that you take every day to lower your um, risk of contracting HIV. But to convince adolescent girls and young women in sub-Saharan Africa who are actually healthy, uh, that they should take a pill every single day uh, to prevent a stigmatized disease is a really tall challenge. And so we brought together human-centered design companies along with an HIV research organization to work together to see how they could make this um, oral prep, as it's known, uh, more appealing to adolescent girls and young women. So we actually developed a brand we're calling V which positions the, the pill more as part of a beauty regimen than a medical product. So huh. it, feels, it comes with a makeup bag. It has a little carrying oh. case that looks like lip balm as opposed to a pill bottle. And it generally is trying to appeal to where adults and girls and young women um, are today, what they care about, empowerment and independence, uh, rather than thinking about disease. And it's interesting because you can imagine, you know, as mm-hmm. you're describing the packaging, I mean, every... So often, right, like tampon companies yeah. will sort of rein, reinvent the packaging and think, oh, this is a chic accessory, not a tampon. But it sounds like a business. It doesn't sound like, you know, an, organ, an impact organization. It sounds like you're trying to find a way to sell this to someone. Right. And in a way, you are. You're trying to sell the, the use. Um, has it proven more effective than previous strategies? Well, we're going to roll it out soon, hopefully in Zimbabwe. So please stay tuned. But it'll be an exciting first foray into using it in real world settings and not research settings. Well, and I like the fact that it's it, because it's tied to makeup a little bit. It's it's something you do every day, mm-hmm. right? And that's the the challenge with some of these when it's just medicines. Trying to remember to do it every day, it, it's difficult, mm-hmm. especially if it's for a future benefit. Yeah, adherence right? rates are really low with medicine. I've also heard more people report brushing their teeth um, out of vanity than out of health. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so sort of tying it to that, you know, you think about teenage, you know, young women, but. This, this is how a business thinks about consumers. And so it's exactly. a very interesting um, shift. So is the investment a lot larger? You talked about bringing in, you know, human-centered design, you know, and we know that huge chunks of our economy are made up of marketing agencies and design agencies that are doing just this to tap into the minds of the users. Um, is it still, you know, are, are these still business cases that work when you have to invest like a business in these impact efforts? 
Well, it's a good question. I think we have to think about the investment overall as well. So certainly there's the near-term investment of what it takes to come up with a design and actually produce and roll it out. But there's also the investment that we've made as a global community in the clinical trials and all of the decades of research to bring these drugs and commodities um, to prove they're effective in a clinical sense. And if nobody uses them, then they don't get to, to the impact that we're looking for. So we think it's a, a really good uh, value for money if we can find that it actually works. And to that point of what you both raised, it's crucial that they actually take it every day mm-hmm. for the prevention impact to be to be realized. So, Amy, I'm, I'm thinking about imagining this in West Philadelphia, and I can imagine foundations, for instance, or individual philanthropists looking at this and going, I'm willing to pay for the pills, Mm -hmm. but I'm not willing to pay for all that other stuff, (laughs) right? You know, foundations are often very uh, focused on just the kind of thing that they want to fund. So how is this being funded with, with, uh, is is it government funding or what is it? Right now, it's government funding. Uh So it's funding from um, the U.S. agency itself, which is government funded. Um, But we are really looking at partnerships with actually other companies Mm -hmm. um, where this might fit within how they are positioning themselves in the marketplace and how they see themselves as a company and the values that they hold. Uh, So stay tuned there. But private sector engagement in general and innovative financing to bring in new types of funding beyond donor funds to leverage and complement our own is a core part of what we're looking to do more of in the future. Fascinating. And so I think that was a great example. I now can really picture right. sort of sort of what you guys are doing. And how they're bringing in the private sector and the business angle, yeah. et cetera. Because you right? really could. I mean, if you hopped in, uh, you know, after the introduction, you could think, who am I talking to? Someone at L'Oreal or something, you know what I mean? Someone at AstraZeneca. You know, these are business solutions. When and, is and it? We would welcome conversations with us. <laughs> if you're listening, I think we've had folks from both on. I, yep. um, so, Amy, at what point or sort of for what projects, programs or issues is your group called in? Is it once traditional interventions have failed um, or, you know, how do they sort of, you know, triage and identify that this is where they need this, you know, mm-hmm. innovation and impact market focused group to come in and tackle a problem? Well, so we have the benefit of actually sitting within the agency, within U.S. Agency for International Development. So we work hand-in-hand with our health expert colleagues as they identify the problems that are um, maybe feeling more intractable with the traditional approaches and then jointly problem-solve. Uh, so we don't necessarily need to be called in like an external consulting firm, but working more hand-in-hand every day to say, what are the key issues that we're seeing on the horizon for HIV prevention or Zika or, or malaria, and how can we work together to, to solve these, which are appropriate for market-based approaches and which ones might we need something else? Um, so sometimes we identify that this problem could be well-served with a market-based approach, and other times... Um, somebody else will flag it for us and, and we'll work together on it. But it's a very uh, close partnership model that we, we use because we recognize we're not steeped in the public health side. We're really focused on the business approaches and we have to work together to, to address these uh, jointly. Yeah. And I'm curious, the um, example you gave of the HIV prevention pill is a pretty new medical intervention, right? This is mm-hmm. something that's come out the last year or a couple of years. Are there any examples of problems that um, have been around for a long time and the solution's been around for a long time. I'm thinking about, you know, drug adherence or vaccines or birth control or something where bringing in the sort of market focus of your group changed 
you know, something that had been a longstanding problem with a solution that just wasn't effective? I think there are different ways um, to look at that. Sometimes it is maybe a longstanding piece where we, we haven't been able to really get the user uptake and something like human-centered design could be useful. But sometimes it could be HIV treatment, which has been around for a long time. But a new uh, drug within that regimen might be newly available. So dolutegravir is um, a medicine that has been available in the U.S. and in other high-income settings for, for many years, but it hasn't fully reached lower-income settings yet. And so we were working together with a number of global partners to think about how can we work with generic manufacturers of this drug uh, to make the price affordable and therefore accessible for low-income countries? Um, and how can we make that transition faster? So um, every few years, there might be a better HIV treatment, but we keep finding a lag between when high-income countries get it and when lower-income countries get it. And so working together, we're trying to plan ahead and, and make sure that we shorten that time from uh, when it becomes available to anybody to when it becomes available in, uh, frankly, the populations uh, where HIV is most prevalent. And as part of the case for doing, I mean, I'm wondering how you do that. How do you sort of um, help accelerate the rate of access? And it's, you know, my first guess is that you're sort of guaranteeing the market by by doing some of these innovations in user acceptance and making it like, hey, you know, sell it to us mm-hmm. at this price point, we can get it to this many young women because we have adherence in these programs. Is that it? Or are there other things that allow you to sort of accelerate that uh, access? I think that can be part of it. And there is a ceiling price agreement with those two uh, generic manufacturers that I referred to. But there's also an enormous amount of planning and coordination. So it's one thing to get the drug into the country or the central medical store, the warehouse, but then it's another for all the providers to be trained and aware about the new drug, the guidelines in that relevant setting to be adjusted, all the coordination of the implementing partners who run the clinics and um, and um, provide a lot of the services for HIV treatments. Um, to be informed and, and coordinated on how they supply it, and even for the logistics manufacturers and the distribution to make sure that it reaches from point A to point B um, and not the old drug. So there's a lot of different components that all have to come together, and I think the market piece is a crucial one, but connecting the market uh, on the supply side to all of that um, implementation and, and rollout is, is another important piece. And we also have to think about expiries and um, and avoiding wastage. So we try to bring all of those issues together and in front of a diverse forum of researchers and clinicians who are operating in those countries and the, MO, the ministries of health, as well as the suppliers and the donors like ourselves, to make sure everybody is at the table and on board. Great. You're listening to Dogs and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Series XM 132. We are talking with Amy Lynn, who's the Acting Deputy Director of the USAID Center for Innovation and Impact. If you want to join the conversation, our phone is one 844 844-942-7866. Excellent. And so I'm curious, Amy, this is a an exciting conversation because these are some new angles on yes, some old yes, problems, exactly. you know, that we've had segments and segments of discussion surrounding this. Um, what is USAID and, and your group in particular do to share these best practices? Because I'm thinking of how catalytic it would be to have, you know, an increase in all, um, you know, patient adherence and taking right. medicine and you're learning all of these things and you're investing in learning them. You're investing in the focus groups or the trials or whatever it takes to get there. Um, what sort of, 
you know, perspective does you, do, you know, do you guys have mm-hmm. on how to share that with the world? Other than joining our show, yes. Of <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming this was first on the list. Yeah, that is exactly the top of our list. Uh, well, we actually have that as part of our mandate, and we've been trying to publish um, and, re- and track our results and reports so that even if somebody's looking at human-centered design for a different setting, or market shaping, such as um, some of the activities I mentioned around the new ARV treatment. For something else, um, we try to uh, distill the lessons that we have learned, note the frameworks that we have found useful, and then and then really publish that and share it with our newsletter or network. Um, we speak at different uh, convenings of global health practitioners and try to generally um, share it more at the field. So we published a market shaping primer that looks at different ways of how we can think about making the market more efficient, and we'll soon be launching a roadmap for blended finance and how we think um, USAID and other donors can think about drawing in new types of capital, especially from the um, capital markets or high net worth individuals and others in the private sector. Yeah, and that's a that's a fascinating thing. It's something we, we talk about a lot at the Social Impact Initiative because part of what we're uh, very aware of, and a lot of our team has done uh, work in nonprofits or philanthropy, so we've sort of been on the on the ground mm-hmm. in that area and, and often have been um, frustrated by the, the challenges of relying only on, on donor and donor grants and, and philanthropy around that. So figuring out different ways to get investors to think about the angle is, uh, I think, profoundly important. And I think also, too, um, when you've got, you know, like the, the example of the, the makeup tie to mm-hmm. the, the daily mm-hmm. uh, prevention pill, it it's a different – it speaks to investors in a diff- in a way that you know it may not always just the the pill itself may not right so I think that that's it kind of creates different approaches that are more uh, amenable to investment capital. Mm-hmm. I think that's really critical, and we know that on our current trajectory, we're not going to reach the health targets or the sustainable development goals that we have set for ourselves as a global community. Um, and with development uh, funding where it is. We recognize the need to bring in new types of, of capital, but that they also, those new investors will have different needs and expectations and interests. So we're trying to manage those different types of expectations and find that um, ideal middle ground of the Venn diagram core and see where we have shared interests and therefore hopefully shared investment opportunities. I, I should also um, make sure I don't forget to mention our website of USA.gov slash CII um, to learn more about our work and the reports that I've mentioned. So uh, you're making all of your stuff public. You're sharing all this information. Are you finding um, a receptivity among the folks that you're talking with or are they looking at it going, you know, makeup and pills, that's just, that's that's messing things up, you know, it's sort of not the kind it's of focus. different or wasteful. Yeah, well, or, yeah. Yeah, it just seems too businessy. Mm-hmm. It has been a journey, and what we have found is there are definitely some skeptics mm-hmm. um, who are not sure how these will work together, but I think there are also a lot of experts in this field who have been there for decades who recognize that some things do need to change, and especially on the HIV prevention side with microbicides aimed at um, giving agency to, to women to help protect themselves, they've realized that some products, even when they've proved um, effective in the lab, haven't um, haven't had the usage or the regular adherence they need in order to actually um, translate into changes on the ground. And so we've seen even um, some clinical trials not come fully to fruition because the users just didn't take the product. So I think there's a recognition that there are 
um, opportunities where this can bring a new perspective and that it can have real impact in making sure those scientific discoveries really come to market and, and reach that end user. And that's such um, a pro- I don't think we're all the way there, but I, I think we're getting um, more interest in, in what these approaches can offer. Yeah, usage by the end user is, is such a common problem. I mean, cook stoves, of course, people talk about, you know, if you, if you don't use them or you don't use them right, then you're not getting the benefits from the, the development, you know. So it's, it's a very interesting thing about how do you get people to use a product that is good for them and will have good effects if, if it's not, you know, if it's not part of their habit anyhow, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really about the, the changing. Thinking about the floss that was sitting next to my toothbrush and I didn't use this morning. Um, <laughs> but you were rushing out of the house exactly. and we've we got show. snow and all that So stuff. many good excuses. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, this is a great point and we always love to give our listeners, you know, some tangible, you know, action items that they can take away from these segments. You know, Amy, if folks are listening from the nonprofit sector who, you know, have interventions that are good for people that aren't, you know, the, the, you know, uptake and usage rate is not what they want it to be. What would be some of your advice on how they go about better understanding that and maybe thinking about some, you know, favorable changes? I think looking at immersive, iterative processes where they can better, that's a lot of words, but I was going to say, you're going to need to double back to make you break that down too. Exactly. How can they really put themselves in the shoes of that user and not just imagine what it's like to be them, but actually speak to users in a, in an, on an open, uh, without preconceptions. And so one thing we have found so helpful is to speak to people that we are trying to reach examples of them. And go to their homes and see what do they have in their home? Where do they store their health products? Where do they store their beauty products? Mm. How might we convince them to store something that they take for their health but actually store it with their makeup kit? Um, because that makes it more likely that they'll use it every day. Um, so seeing what, what triggers and values they have that are unrelated to your area or your product and then seeing how you can change your product and not hope the user will change um, to, to help that habit form. I think that's, I mean, a, that's been one of the yeah. pieces that was so helpful for us. That's a, that is a, a sort of really great line to think about, you know, that basically what you want to do, change your product, not force the, the user to change because you have more control over the product than you have over the user acting in certain oh, ways. Yeah, behavior change is so hard. Like, and I'm thinking there's, you know, one medication I take daily and it is with my contacts and my makeup <laughs> and my toothbrush sitting, you know, right there, not in the medicine cabinet you know, off in a high shell, but, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> so you're a perfect, you're a perfect example. It may, it may, but I would never have thought about it that uh, right, way. Right. But it was like, yeah, this is how you get that to be, you know, part of part of your daily routine. And I know more and more people who are also keeping uh, sort of important medications by their coffee uh-huh. machine because <laughs> um, it's sort of like, if this, then this. Um, so the it, other thing I might mention, too, is well, one thing we found so helpful is talking to people with completely different skill sets and perspectives. Huh. And they come up with ideas that we might not have come up with either. So the other and these aren't the users themselves, get. but like other sector experts or exactly okay. other sector experts. So talking to somebody who is an expert in makeup and seeing how they might approach it um, oh. rather than only speaking to global health professionals and the end users. So the more diverse set of perspectives that we can round up, I think, the farther we go. And, and that might be another recommendation for listeners who have a similar problem. Yeah, Sounds like I, you have a fun job. It does. <laughs> it, it is pretty fun. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I think it's easy for a lot of folks to see, you know, for instance, your title and be like, oh, that sounds, you know, very bureaucratic and Oh gosh, you know, medical issues in emerging markets sounds like, you know, huge, but this is this is, is what fun. this is what the work is. It does sound fun. And what I like about the advice to listeners is that that is you're not saying conduct a randomized control trial that costs 
you know, X thousand dollars. You're saying go into someone's home, find a user and see if you can, you know, ask them to walk you through their morning routine or see where they keep their stuff. And, you know, that data point of one can be powerful as a place Thanks. to start and to sort of illuminate some possible innovations and, um, and or, you know, talking to other experts. Everyone has someone in their network who who does a very different type of work yep. uh, or is a different demographic in some significant way. Ask, you know, ask them for their perspective on the problem. I'm thinking our students would, you know, are a treasure trove for us. You know, why don't we ask them more when we're having problems <laughs> with figuring out what works for them? Um, very cool. Are there any other – I'm taking a look at the time. We've got a couple more minutes here. But, Amy, any other, like, favorite stories or examples of this work in action that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think just one other thing I'd, I'd like to mention is um, it can also be very real-time and responsive, the work that we do. And, and so it's exciting to work on these long-standing challenges, but it's also exciting to respond to, to epidemics or, or current threats as they break out. So when we were facing, all facing, um, the Zika threat, um, we realized that not only do we need to find new ideas, um, but we also need to address gaps where um, – where they exist. And so we issued a grand challenge um, to ask anybody in the world, do you have ideas on how we can address some of these core problems around Zika? And we noticed that we needed a rapid test um, so that people who thought they might have Zika could find out quickly if they did or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the market just wasn't responding. The commercial incentives weren't there um, to, to produce it. So we worked with UNICEF to create a $10 million advanced purchase commitment and said, if you are able, you companies are able to make a Zika mm -hmm. test that meets these criteria, we guarantee that at least $10 million of them will be purchased in this way. And so that has um, been rolling out. We've issued two tenders and gotten excellent responses. And so it just shows how we can respond um, real time and, and very quickly, as well as looking at these longstanding um, issues. And what, and what did that unstick? Because in theory, these companies should have been able to forecast like, okay, there are going to be big markets for this product or here's the need for rapid tests. What did they, you know, the, was it just the guarantee of the purchase? from USA? I mean, from uh, UNICEF? I think it was, well, it was from, yeah, so it was done in partnership. And I think it was both the guarantee of the orders, because there is a huge amount of uncertainty yes. in these markets, yep. um, but also the clarity around the specifications, what exactly would mm. be needed and what should they be developing towards. Um, so it was clear specifications and um, this this removing the uncertainty or removing some of the uncertainty in the marketplace that changed the risk reward balance for them and tipped it in our favor to have them invest in this area for low income settings. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, that's the issue with the kind of low income settings that you, you on one hand think that there might be a, a big market there because there are a lot of people who would be affected, but are they able to pay it at what price and can we, we afford it? So removing that risk, I think, was was a really a smart move on your part. Yeah. yeah. Did any of those, did, did the grand challenges, um, you know, circling back to your last point, identify any innovative solutions? Did anyone come forth with anything that you guys hadn't thought about or in a, a new or different or a more innovative way? So many. <laughs> <laughs> Just to highlight one, um, our team recently visited Brazil where we were looking at Ifacara, which makes a sandal um, that has um, a chemical in it to a plume that um, w that wards away mosquitoes and other pests. Oh. And so we're testing it right now so you can wear the sandal and be protected from mosquitoes and therefore contracting Zika. What is it? What Does it have a, a chemical it releases or a... Yeah, it releases... I called it a plume because it goes into the air and it, it creates this um, protective... Aura, I guess, around you that um, that 
moves the mosquitoes away. And it's been so popular that we have found the users are are starting to try to put them into their different rooms and even give them to their family members. Sure. Uh, so we're still researching it, and it's still underway, but we're excited to see where it might go. We and need to do a grand challenge. Like yeah, that. <laughs> that's very, very cool. Well, Amy, we have to uh, close the segment. It's been great having this conversation with you. We've been talking to Amy Lynn, the Acting Deputy Director of the USAID Center for Innovation and Impact. When we come back from our break, we'll be talking with Ginger Zelensky, who is the CEO and President of Benefits Data Trust. And that should be uh, a great conversation, an entirely different angle, but one that I think does tie to the uh, the user and getting mm-hmm. people to use things. So, Amy, thanks again. We'll be taking a break, and we'll be back soon. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 